0: So our children thought hurricanes were a pretty good thing for many years of their life. But we're going to start in Acts 27 today and our lesson is going to be about a hurricane of sorts because Paul was caught in a violent storm on the Mediterranean Sea and so we're going to look at today how Paul weathered the storm. Now two years earlier... As we've been studying the last month or two, Paul and some Gentile friends traveled to Jerusalem for a couple of purposes. They wanted to deliver a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem, and they wanted to share with the Jewish Christians there what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. And Paul spent the majority then of two years in prison in Caesarea, falsely accused of sedition by the Jewish leaders and though two Roman governors Felix and Festus both found Paul innocent they refused to let him go and kept him confined as a favor to the Jews and eventually Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar to have his case heard in Rome And it was at that point that the then governor Festus really had a problem he didn't know what to do with Paul he didn't specifically he didn't know what to tell the emperor about why he was sending Paul to stand trial because there were no valid charges against him. And so we're told that Governor Festus asked the then King Agrippa to help him, to help him find some reasons that he could tell Rome why he was sending Paul. Now, we don't know what reasons Festus came up with. The Bible doesn't share it with us, but in chapter 27, it's time for Paul to go to Rome. So I thought it might be interesting to cover the logistics of the journey first. And then we'll come back and read the scriptures and and concentrate on the lessons that we want to learn. Maybe it'll help us focus a little better. So let's look at the logistics of this trip. You see some familiar cities on the map. Caesarea is where Paul is in prison down near Jerusalem. And the first leg of the journey was actually quite short. Paul was put in custody of a Roman centurion who found a small boat and the first leg of their journey was simply a one day trip to the city of Sidon it was a small boat and they hugged the shoreline because the boat wasn't very large the second leg was a little bit longer they actually sailed near the coastline on the lee or the, the downwind side of the island of Cyprus past the uh, home church of Paul in Antioch and past Paul's home actually, childhood home of Tarsus and ended up docking at the port of Myra. Now, Myra was a major seaport in the grain trade for Rome. Grain ships would fill up in Alexandria from the Nile River Delta and sail primarily to Myra on their way to Italy. So it was a major grain seaport. Now, there were two options from here. The actor, the centurion decided it would be wise if he found a bigger boat, an ocean-worthy boat, ship, that could sail across the open sheet, open sea. So he found one, a grain ship, on its way from Alexandria to Italy, and he boarded passage for Paul and the other passengers on this ship headed for Italy. There were a couple of options, actually. One was to go south of the area of Achaia, or what we know today as Greece, a little bit more dangerous than the other route, which was to go across a short passage of land at Corinth to actually unload the boat, transfer it to the sea on the other side. We don't know which option the captain of this larger ship chose, but they left Myra on their way to Italy. And the going was actually pretty slow until they crossed uh, just past the, uh, the mainland of Asia Minor when the wind got so bad and blew them south that they had to go off course all the way south of the island of Crete. And made dock at a small port in called Fair Havens. Now by this time it was late in the year. It was, Paul says it was past the feast of, of the uh, Day of Atonement. So it was late September, early October when ocean traffic or sea traffic on the Mediterranean Sea was very dangerous for about the next three or four months. And so Paul talked to the captain and the centurion and told him it's not too safe to travel any further. The centurion, however, decided to go with the captain's plan, which was to sail just 40 miles further up the coast of Crete to a better harbor where they could spend the winter, the port of Phoenix. And so they waited for the wind to be good, and when they got a south wind, which was favorable for them to travel to Phoenix, they took off. But almost immediately... They, they came into a violent storm, a northeastern they called it, a hurricane of sorts, which blew their ship way off course. They couldn't even make the 40-mile journey to Phoenix. They were blown south. The, the storm was so violent that the sailors pulled a lifeboat up on top of the deck and strapped it down. And then they put ropes underneath the ship to hold it together because the force of the waves was so great. They began to be afraid that they were going to be pushed up onto the shallow sands of North Africa. So they threw the ship's tackle overboard. They threw some anchors down. They let the sail down. They even threw some of the cargo overboard. But the storm continued and continued and continued. For 14 days, the storm never let up. And then the sailors heard the crashing of breakers and and realized they were getting close to land. The captain's plan was to beach the ship so they could all escape. So they threw all the tackle and all the cargo overboard and tried to run the ship up on the beach of this land that was in front of them. But it didn't work, and the ship got caught on the rocks. The waves beat it to pieces, and the passengers on board had to swim ashore or float ashore on whatever they could find. And they ended up on the island of Malta. That's the logistics of this trip. Let's read Acts 27 and see if we can fill in a few more details. Acts chapter 27, when it was decided that we would, I'm reading from the NASB this week just to keep you guys off guard. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Julius. And embarking in an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coasts of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Sinaitis, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty, sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of La When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to him, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began... Crete close in shore sorry but before very long rushed down from the land a violent wind called a uroquilo which in Greek is the combination of two words north wind and east wind verse 15 and when the ship was caught in it and could face the could not face the wind we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. moving, so... Try this. Sorry. Okay. Somebody remind me where we were. 19? All right, we'll start in 18. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, From then on, all hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the sea and had let down the ship's boat into the sea, on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the the centurion and to the soldiers... Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the, until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not only not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were headed for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to break up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump aboard for, overboard first and get to land and the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that all were brought safely to land. Now there's a lot of lessons, a lot of possible lessons we could study from this marvelous chapter of Acts 27. We could do a study on leadership from Paul Or Julius, if I was still a Dow, I'd volunteer to teach a crisis management course on this, based on Paul's actions through the crisis. In fact, there have been people who use this chapter to study the ancient mariner practices of Paul's time, used by historians. But what we're going to do today is look at God in the storm, specifically God's purpose in the storm, and secondly, God's grace in the storm. So God's purpose and God's grace. Now as I read this chapter, I couldn't help but wonder, what was God doing? Why did God bring the storm? Now when we look to the Bible for answers, there's actually a similar situation to that of the prophet Jonah more than 800 years earlier. Both men were called by God for special purposes. Both were sent by God to what at the time, was the most powerful Gentile nation in the world, and they were sent there to testify. They both traveled west by ship on the Mediterranean Sea, and they both found themselves in the middle of a raging storm. But that's where the similarities end, because Jonah was running away from God in rebellion, and God sent a great storm to stop Jonah in his tracks and sent a great fish to turn Jonah around and take him back where God wanted him to be. It was not the case with Paul, as we've been studying in the last several chapters of Acts. Paul was obedient to bring God's testimony to the Gentiles and their kings. He was obedient to visit Jerusalem, and he was now being obedient to go to Rome to testify about Jesus Christ. Now, I said Paul was being obedient because from our previous studies it's quite clear that God wanted Paul to go to Rome. Back in Acts twenty three eleven, Jesus tells Paul, Take courage, for as I have solemnly witnessed to my as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So why would God make it so difficult for Paul to get there? What is God doing? Well, we don't really know, but there are a few principles at work in this chapter that might help us. Let's look at a few. First of all, we all experience storms in our lives. I'm talking about difficulties or disappointments or challenges or losses of some sort. Uh, Sometimes we might even call them disasters. Basically, anything that causes a crisis in our life, we could call a storm. And our storms come in different shapes and sizes. Sometimes they're associated with literal storms, like the hurricane or the torrential flooding that we uh, went through several weeks ago or that our friends in Louisiana are still recovering from or the parking lot outside. Oftentimes, they involve loss. Think about it, loss of a job, loss of a friend, a financial loss of some kind, the loss of a pastor... Sometimes it involves sickness or perhaps even the death of a loved one. Storms are part of our lives. No one is exempt. No one gets a free pass. Storms are part of our lives in God's sovereignty. The second principle is storms don't necessarily mean that we're out of God's will. Now, when it comes to our own storms... That's something we can pretty readily agree with. But let me state it a different way. A storm in someone else's life doesn't necessarily mean they are out of God's will. In a strange way, I think we often like to think so. Because it helps us reduce God to something or someone we can more easily fathom. Or someone we can defend. As if he needed our defense. If God sends a storm into someone's life as a way of correcting sin, like Jonah, we can understand it and we can justify it. But if God sends a storm into a life of someone who is actively trying to obey him, like Paul in chapter 27, to the best of our knowledge, we're baffled. We can't explain it. Better yet, we can't explain him. As Steve pointed out a couple of weeks ago in the, in the sermon from the book of Ruth about God's sovereignty, God's ways are not our ways. And we'll never be able to fully explain him. And from my perspective, that's okay. Think about it. Would you be comfortable worshiping a God that I could explain? I would not be comfortable worshiping a God that I could explain. We may not know why God brings storms into our lives, but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean we're out of God's will. And the third point from this chapter that we just read is that it's not only about us. Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in a storm, we ask the question, why would God do this to me? Or when we read chapter 27 about Paul suffering in a violent storm as he tries to obey God, we ask the question, as I did just a few minutes ago, why would God do this to Paul? Well, Luke gives us an interesting detail, I think, in verse 37. Because out of nowhere in verse 37, Luke says, all of us in the ship were 276 persons. God was not working a one-piece puzzle. There were 275 other people who endured this storm with Paul. There were other prisoners. There were Roman soldiers. There was the ship's owner, the ship's captain, the sailors, Paul's friends, perhaps other passengers. And if you include the family members of those people on board... There may have been a thousand or more lives that were impacted by this storm. And that's just one ship on the Mediterranean Sea that was impacted. Last week there was was a huge storm approaching our house. I was working outside and I found myself constantly looking up as the storm approached. And when I came inside, I quickly told Pam about the approaching storm, and we both went to the windows and watched the storm approach. The storm got my attention. That's what storms do, don't they? They get our attention. And Acts 27 makes it very clear that this storm got the attention of all 276 people on board. How do we know? Because they didn't eat for two weeks. The storm had their attention. Now it would be very difficult for me to imagine that these men could soon forget Paul and his God, Yahweh. Paul, the prisoner who had a peace that passed all understanding in the midst of the storm. And Yahweh, the God who promised to deliver them all from sure death and did exactly what he said he was going to do without the loss of a single hair. From a single head. Now most of these men were sailors and soldiers, and they'd spent their lives among around really strong men. But they had likely never seen anyone with the strength of this little preacher from Tarsus, and they had probably prayed to Poseidon or Neptune, the Greek and Roman gods of the sea. But they had likely never experienced in such a vivid way the only true God who created and controlled the seas and can tell them what he was going to do and then do it. We don't know how God used this storm in the lives of these men or their families and their friends, but we can be sure he used it for the good of those who were called to his purpose. We know that from Romans chapter 8. So when going through a storm... We sometimes need to remind ourselves it's not only about us. So we don't know the purpose or better yet the purposes for which God sent the storm. But we can see in this chapter that although God did not spare Paul from the storm, he did provide grace in the storm. So let's see from Acts 27 how God extended grace to Paul as he experienced the storm on the way to Rome. The first thing I would say is that God provided friends. In fact, two close friends accompanied Paul on his journey. Both had come with Paul to Jerusalem two years earlier and apparently stayed as Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea. The first was Luke. We see it from chapter 1 where he says, We including himself. So Luke was with Paul, the author. And in verse 2, we see that Aristarchus, the Thessalonican, was also with Paul. Now, Now, Aristarchus is an interesting guy. It's hard to get a full picture of this faithful friend of Paul's from the brief scriptures that we have about him in Acts. But he was one of Paul's most faithful friends for at least 10 years. And in Acts chapter 19, we see that he was with Paul in Ephesus when the riot broke out. And in fact, it was Aristarchus who was attacked by the angry, riotous crowd. He took one on the chin for Paul, literally. In Acts chapter 20, it was Aristarchus who went ahead and laid the groundwork for most of the second half of Paul's third missionary journey. And Aristarchus traveled with Paul to Jerusalem, apparently stayed close during his confinement goes with Paul to Rome as we see here and he's mentioned again in Colossians the letter that Paul wrote from Roman prison that Aristarchus was still there Paul called him a fellow prisoner he was quite a faithful friend and he and Luke must have been a tremendous encouragement to Paul as he headed for Rome think about it. he wasn't going there for a vacation He was going to stand trial before Emperor Nero, one of the most evil rulers in the history of mankind. And even though he must have been excited about the possibility of meeting the Roman Christians or sharing the gospel with the leaders of the Roman Empire, he was well aware that his sufferings in Caesarea probably paled in comparison to what he was going to face in Rome. And we know from our own experiences that challenges don't seem so daunting when we tackle them with close friends and fellow Christians. Have you found that to be true? Now, it's easy to forget that Paul was a prisoner of Rome, and Roman prisoners did not have the right to bring friends with them. But for some reason, Paul did. Not one, but two. Now, Luke doesn't record what Luke tells Paul. He doesn't record anything that Aristarchus said to Paul. He doesn't record any advice they gave him, any coaching that they gave him, any encouragement that they gave him. But when I read the name Paul in Acts 27, in my mind, I see Paul with Luke on one side and Aristarchus on the other together through this storm. So part of God's grace to Paul during the storm was friends. The second thing I see that God extended to Paul was favor, favor with other people. First of all, he gave them favor, I think, with Governor Festus. The decision to allow Paul to, accompany, to be accompanied by friends was so unusual that it was most likely made by someone at the top of the chain of command. In this case, Governor Festus. Now, if you're cynical like me, you, you'd say Festus knew Paul was innocent. He knew he had no valid charges against Paul. And perhaps he was hoping Paul would reciprocate the favor when he got to Rome and testified before the emperor. We don't know. But he had give, God gave Paul favor with Festus. Maybe more importantly, he gave Paul favor with the Roman centurion, Julius. There was a commentary I read. I can't remember who it was. We'll give John MacArthur credit, although it might not be him. It's not my thought, but I read a commentary that said, uh, pointed out, that when Roman centurions are mentioned in the, in the Bible, it's always in a very positive light, and it's true. Think about the uh, centurion in Capernaum who had a sick servant who sent word to Jesus asking him to heal him and told Jesus he didn't even have to come. He could just say the word and his servant would be healed. And Christ commended him for his outstanding faith. And then there's the centurion Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who was a, they described as a righteous and god fearing man, respected by all the Jews. Now for a centurion, a commander of an occupying Roman army to be held in high esteem by the Jews meant he was something special. So apparently the Romans were pretty bad at selecting their military lead, their political leaders. Think about emperors and governors. We've seen some bad ones. But they must have been really good at selecting their military leaders. Probably, probably because the latter was based solely on merit. It sounds familiar somewhat with our own country, doesn't it? But back to Julius. In verse 3, against protocol, Julius allows Paul, the prisoner, to take leave in Sidon. You see that in verse 3? He lets Paul actually leave the ship. Very unusual to let a prisoner leave. And he lets Paul leave to go visit more friends, actually, in Sidon, who apparently helped him with an illness. The words there indicate some type of medical issue. You just say, wow. You know that Julius would let Paul leave is a strong indication that he had, given, he had been granted favor with Julius. And then in verse 9, Julius gives Paul, the prisoner, an opportunity to give advice to the captain about traveling late in the season. Now, eventually the captain recommends something else, and Julius agrees with him, but do you think every prisoner on board got the right to give advice to the captain about what they should do? Probably not, but Paul did. And then in verse 43, near the end of the chapter, as the boats, they're trying to run the boat uh, on the beach. The time came to abandon ship. And what does it say the soldiers wanted to do? They wanted to kill all the prisoners. Why? Because the Roman soldiers would, were accountable for those prisoners and would endure the same penalty that their prisoners were due if they let them for some reason escape. But the centurion says wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. So Paul had favor with the centurion, Julius. And he also had favor with the sailors. Look at verse 30 through 36. In verse 30, knowing that the breakup of the ship was imminent, the sailors attempted to sneak away. They attempted to lower the lifeboat without anybody knowing what was going on so they could get in the lifeboat and go ashore. But Paul saw them, and Paul ratted on them, and Paul told the captain what was going on, and if they let these men go, if they let the sailors leave, they had no hope of surviving. And so the soldiers cut the lifeboat away and let it drift away as the sailors watched. watched. Now, I'm surprised at this point that the sailors didn't throw Paul overboard with the boat, but they didn't. In verse 33, an amazing thing happens. As dawn approached, Paul invites everyone, sailors included, to have a meal and give thanks to God, and they did. And then in verse 36, it says, they were all encouraged. Pam's prayer for me at work for many years was that God would grant me favor. She would pray that God would grant me favor with my boss, with my coworkers, with fellow employees. And there's no logical reason for the favor I received at work other than it was God's grace. And now that's our prayer for our own children, that they would find favor with those they work with it may well have been the prayer of Paul's friends, Luke and Aristarchus. So Paul granted God favor as well as friends. Now reading about God extending his grace to Paul through these people, many of whom, if not all, were unbelievers... It got me thinking, what does God do through believers? The same? Maybe more? Well, Peter has a word from us, from God, on this in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Let me put it up on the screen so we can look at it together. Let's we'll start in verse 7 of First Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins be hospitable to one another be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of god whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what is Peter saying here? He's saying that believers are called to be stewards, caretakers of the manifold, and that's an interesting word. It literally means multicolored, to be stewards of the multicolored grace of God. And how are we supposed to do that by using our god-given gifts our spiritual gifts to love one another and then peter gives actually some examples of the gifts he's talking about he lists prayer and hospitality and speaking and serving but there are lots of other lists of spiritual gifts in the bible in romans 12 paul adds several more he adds teaching and exhortation and generous giving and leadership and mercy But there's no place in Scripture where an exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts is given. There's lots of different passages about it. They all have similarities, but they're all unique in their list. Why? Because as Peter wrote in verse 10 that's up on the screen right now, God has given us stewardship of the manifold, the infinitely colorful grace of God. Our gifts are infinitely colorful as well. Now, in verse 10, we see there that the word grace, the word grace is charis in the Greek, which its literal meaning is favor. So much like Paul enjoyed the favor of other people during his storm, we are called to extend that favor, the favor the grace of God that he has granted us to other people through love. So let's stop for a minute and just think think about how our spiritual gifts could be used to help someone who is going through a storm prayer hospitality service teaching exhortation mercy giving what spiritual gift has God favored you with and I think the question for all of us then is are we using it to help others weather the storms of life Ashley Parker is uh, planning a trip to Baton Rouge next weekend it's an opportunity to help with physical labor and it's an opportunity to use our spiritual gifts to extend God's grace to those in the Baton Rouge area who are still weathering the storm so Paul Extended grace, God extended grace to Paul through friends, through favor with others, and thirdly, from faith from the Word of God. From 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we know that four or five, or four, written about four or five years before this trip to Rome, we know Paul says he had already survived three shipwrecks and spent a night in the open sea. So shipwrecks weren't something new to Paul, and he clearly didn't want to go through that again. And at the same time, Paul knew that Jesus had personally told him that Rome was his destination. But during the storm, doubts started to creep in. Was a fourth shipwreck going to be the end for Paul? In verses 9 and 10, we read, while they were still docked in Crete... When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. This is before the storm started. And then in verse 20, in the middle of the storm, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And knowing this, God put his grace on full display for Paul and the men on board in verses 21 through 26. Let's put up that key passage just so we can look at it. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet Now I urge you to keep your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you and all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground... On a certain island. Now, verse 21 is really interesting to me. It says they had gone a long time without food, and it seems unrelated to the rest of the verse at all. It kind of reminds me of the uh, Snickers commercial, you know, where the person's just not themselves until they eat a Snickers, and then they're back to their nice normal selves. It probably has something to do with Paul's likely ill-received "I told you so." in the next verse, right? He stands before these angry men who've been in the storm for many, many days, and he says, you know, I told you so. You should have took my advice. He needed a Snickers bar, didn't he? And the last verse is pretty interesting. Paul tells them, we're going to run aground. He's very specific about what was going to happen, and he says, we're going to go to a certain island. Can you imagine the conversation between Paul and the angel? I can just imagine what was going on. You know, I don't know if the angel didn't know where they were going to land, or he told Malta, and Paul had no idea where Malta was. We don't know what happened, but it's kind of interesting to me that Paul says, we're going to run aground on an island somewhere, a certain island. Now, based on our history, it's not likely that God's going to send us an angel. we don't have any shortage of communication from him do we he's spoken to us it says in hebrews in these days through jesus christ he's given us the holy spirit as a deposit and the holy spirit reminds us and prompts us and warns us but primarily he's god has provided us with the bible his written word Which is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now if you allow me to make a connection between God's spoken word to Paul through the angel. And his written word to us through the Bible. We can start to apply this lesson to our own lives. You see, we often talk about having faith in God's word, that we want to have faith in God's word, that we pray for more faith in God's word, that we would more readily obey and believe what God's word says. But it works both ways. Because we see here that Paul's faith was strengthened from God's word. Not only in God's word, here Paul's faith was strengthened from God's word before the angel came Paul was apparently having difficulty believing what Jesus had told him back in Jerusalem two years previous Jesus said you must witness in Rome so what moved Paul from a weak give up kind of faith that we saw in the middle of the storm to one that was so strong that he was ready to testify to everybody on board well it was because the word of God came to him anew Again, fresh, right when he needed it in the middle of the storm. It's as if he had never heard Jesus tell him, you've got to go to Rome, but he heard it that time. I think that's what part of what the writer of Hebrews meant when he wrote that the Word of God is living and active. Do you find that to be true? I read things in my Bible that look brand new and fresh and entirely applicable to the situation I'm in. And I think I've never seen that before. The only problem is it's underlined, highlighted, and it's got notes beside it. Right? God's Word is alive and active. So part of God's grace to us during the storms of our lives is that He strengthens our faith through the reading and remembrance and dependence on His Word. So can you think of a storm in your own life when a particular passage from scriptures really resonated with you? One that seemed like it was God speaking directly to the fears and uncertainty you were facing. One that helped you trust that all was going to be okay, even when you sensed that there was a shipwreck up ahead. One that prompted you to say, like Paul, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. I think we can. For me, it's Philippians 4, 6 through 7 often. The passage that talks about, don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and thanksgiving, put it before God, and a peace that passes all understanding will be ours. It's the last part of that verse that really strikes me. It says, he will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because when I'm in a storm, it's my heart and my mind that are most at risk. My mind keeps wanting to wander back. My heart keeps wanting to be fearful. And the scriptures say, God will put a sentry. He will put guards in front of your heart and your mind to protect it. And it's so true, especially during the storms. So when we find ourselves in the storms, friends can be a big help. Favor from others can give us some relief. But the Word of God is our lifeline. So when in storm, it's important for us to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Now, it should be obvious to all of us, but just to be clear, God has an infinite number of ways to extend His grace to us. We've just talked about three that are apparent to me in Acts 27. But his manner of extending grace is just as manifold as is his grace itself. So what are we going to take away from all this? In hurricanes, for the most part, we know when they're coming because we get early warning signs. We have hurricane season, so there's only a few months of the year that hurricanes are most likely And with modern technology, we can pinpoint landfall of a hurricane within hours, if not minutes, ahead of time. And we also not only know when they're coming, we're told how powerful they're going to be. Is it going to be a Category 1 or a Category 5 storm? And because of that, we can anticipate how disruptive the storm's going to be and how many people are likely to be impacted. And as a result, we can make preparations list of things that we can do as the storms approaching and if we see something that where we're not fully prepared we typically have time to get prepared but with the storms God sends into our lives we don't know when they're going to come nor how disruptive they're going to be and we don't know who else is going to be impacted by the same storm and worse yet we often don't know the purpose for the storm nor when it will end. But we can still be prepared for both the storms in our own lives as well as the lives of other people by, first of all, being a faithful friend. Secondly, by involving ourselves in ministries that utilize our spiritual gifts. It's one way that God intended for us to extend His manifold grace to other people. And thirdly, by immersing ourselves in God's Word. Not just when we're in a storm, but at every opportunity. And if we do so, the storms won't bypass us. And they won't be made any less dangerous. And the ways won't be any less intimidating. But we'll be better prepared to recognize and to appreciate and even participate in the extension of God's grace in the storm. We'll be better prepared to weather the storm. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, close up this study of Acts 27, we...